Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jenny Bangham about her new book, The Blood Relations, Transfusion and the Making of Human Genetics. Blood is messy, dangerous, and charged with meaning. By following it as it circulates through people and institutions, Jenny Bangham explores the intimate connections between the early infrastructures of blood transfusion and the development of human genetics. Focusing on mid-20th century Britain, blood relations connects histories of eugenics to the local politics of giving blood, showing how the exchange of blood carved out networks that made human populations into objects of medical surveillance and scientific research. Bangham reveals how biology was transformed by two world wars, how scientists have worked to define racial categories, and how the practices and rhetoric of public health made genetics into a human science. Today, genetics is a powerful authority on human health and identity, and blood relations helps us understand how this authority was achieved. Well, Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you. So as we're living through the unprecedented times uh, during the pandemic, with hopefully some end in sight, I say very, very carefully, I would like to ask, how has it influenced you and your work? Thank you. Um, yes, it's been a, it's been a, um, a challenging year um, for me, in part because I started a new job and new project um, last March, so March 2020. And um, it's made things have been, it's been hard to contact um, people and it's been hard to get access to archives, which is the main source that I normally work with. But um, but as things went on, I began to do interviews with the people that I'm researching at the moment um, using Zoom. And so it seemed very alien to begin with, um, but now it's become a part of normal practice. So, um, so things shifted, and now they feel normal again, even though, um, even though things are actually quite different to the way they would normally proceed. So, your work uh, focuses on researching archives quite extensively. So, are there more digitalized archives now, archives nowadays that you can access? There are, but digitization is is time time consuming and quite expensive still so um so to do the kind of arch- archival work that's really exciting to kind of leaf through pages of things that haven't really been looked at for a long time or that haven't been covered by other people that's still the sort of thing you kind of want to do um with the paper archive itself um however there are some i i use the welcome archives in london quite extensively and there are some wonderful treasures there on their website and more and more every month so um so i do use that as well um so things are changing 
And you yourself, how have you, how have you adapted uh, to the new setting? Perhaps you took up a new hobbies, maybe taking walks? <laughs> um, well, I, I, um, I've got a little toddler um, who, well, she's now three, so she's less of a toddler and more of a small child. And so that has been taking up most of um, any spare time. Um, we've managed to carve out a space inside the flat to to work. Um, and um, and she is often being looked after at nursery. But um, but I would say I haven't carried I haven't taken up any new hobbies during during this. <laughs> <laughs> I have been reading probably a bit more than normal because um because of the because of not being able to travel to places to 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 visit archives and so on. So reading published material, I suppose that has that has been a really nice change. Excellent. So can you tell tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yes. So um, so I'm a historian of science and medicine, um, but I began my career not as a historian but as a scientist. Um, I. When I was growing up, I always expected to be a scientist. Uh, my father was a scientist, and um, there were various other family members who were, who were very into science. So I I loved um, laboratories. I really enjoyed reading science. It was the era of, um, I guess it was the era in which people like Richard Dawkins were still writing interesting books, and there was lots of discussion about evolutionary biology and so on. Um, and I grew up with the ambition to be an evolutionary biologist. Um, and so I studied biology at university and I did go on to to do a PhD and work in labs. Um, and it was, so it was very late on that I realized that, um, that I was perhaps more interested in the cultures of laboratories, the cultures of science, um, the social dynamics of science, um, than I was perhaps in the kinds of questions that my scientist colleagues were asking. Um, and it took me even longer to discover that there was really a whole field of research dedicated to thinking about, um, about the history of science um, and, and why scientists ask the questions that they do. And once I realised that, um, I was lucky and able to get funding to, um, to go back to university and to um, retrain, I suppose, as a as a historian of science and medicine. So, um, um, yeah. So, so that was how I got into into this field. It feels like it was always there in the background, but I hadn't really taken it seriously enough <clears throat> until I realised there were other people who study this. Were there any mentors who supported you and inspired you along the way? I, looking back, I'm quite surprised at some of the people that I contacted out of the blue when I was still working in the lab. Um, I had heard of a few people that did this kind of work and I read some, some of their work, obviously. Um, and so I, I sort of sent off a handful of emails to people in the field um, to ask their advice and ask whether this was something that they thought I could switch into. And they were very kind, these people. And they were um, so Rainy Dustin was one of them. Janet Brown was another. Um, they were they, and um, Erica Milam at now at Princeton. She was another, and they were all kind of kindly thought about what I was asking and and sent back advice on on how I might move into the field. So they feel like important. Um, they were important figures in in being able to make that switch. Uh, so you are an excellent example of somebody who's who decided to follow her passion. So switching from uh, science 
to history of science. Do you have any advice to young career researchers who may be considering uh, taking up uh, this career path? It's a difficult question to answer, I think, at this time, um, because, um, as you know, um, job opportunities are very scarce in this field, in Mm. humanities generally. So um, so, uh, I think it would depend on the specific circumstances in which those um, young research investigators find themselves. Um, There's a lot of wonderful things to read. And I think that uh, perhaps that advice of contacting people who work in the field, who do work that um, that you find kind of interesting, um, is it's worth doing. I think the people who that I've certainly come across in the field of history of science and STF, SDS are extremely generous and and happy to talk about about um, opportunities and about their work and will really invest time in trying to help people to um, to do what they'd like to do. So perhaps that perhaps I would advise to do a similar thing to me, which is to reach out to people and talk to them, to scholars. Yeah, that's a great advice. Yeah. Just uh, make that first step and uh, write an email. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you've also done some editorial work. And how did you find uh, that? That's right, I did. Um, yeah, so again, when I was doing my PhD, I was working in the lab. Um, this was at University College London. I as I said, I really enjoyed the cultures of laboratories, but I wasn't sure if I was really doing the right kind of research myself. Um, And so I looked around um, for related careers, I suppose. And the first opportunity I had was to work, I was actually covering somebody's maternity cover for a journal called Development. So it was a field that was adjacent to, but not something I um, knew a huge amount about. Um, And it was a short-term contract. And I, I worked as a well, as a reviews editor. So I was commissioning and editing review articles. And it's quite thrilling because we were choosing who to who to commission, um, thinking about talking to people at conferences, trying to work out what were the new topics that needed to be reviewed. Um, and it really felt, I think a lot of editors who do that kind of work are really in the thick of science and um, sort of guiding, shaping how things, the trajectory of how things how things move um and and I found that yeah pretty fascinating and I've I've always felt since becoming a historian that I'd love to do more to understand the history of that work of that editorial work um there are a few wonderful scholars who who do that um and and I would I would love to do a little bit more myself in understanding the histories of those publications um and and what kind of difference that they have made to the science that people do excellent so how did you get interested in blood? <laughs> Another good question. Um, I have to say, I've always been a bit squeamish of blood. And I, as I get older, I get even more squeamish. I can't look at needles. I find it all a bit, um, a bit gory. But, um, but the, so the impetus of getting into this story um, really came from my longer standing interest in human evolution and um, and genetics. So as I said, it was those topics were um, were things that I sort of grew up reading about um, at school and at university. Um, and when I moved into the history of science, I was really stunned to find that there was that I that I could now that I now had a vocabulary for thinking about 
and critiquing that kind of science to thinking about like where it comes from, what kinds of claims are being made, what are the political implications of that kind of work. And I went to my prospective PhD supervisor and told him that I was interested in these questions. And he told me about these two massive archives that had recently been acquired by the Wellcome Library, um, beautifully catalogued. Um, these were the archives of somebody called Robert Race and Ruth Sanger. They were a pair who worked very closely and ran a blood group unit in um, in London. And then the other archive was closely related to that of somebody called Arthur Morant, who, um, who also ran a blood grouping lab, um, but who also collected vast quantities of data on on the blood groups of populations around the world. So the Wellcome had acquired these archives. And um, and I think what Nick Hopwood, this is my supervisor, what he saw um, that I perhaps um, didn't quite at the time, but then soon learned, was that blood groups were these very interesting entities that had this kind of crucial role in blood transfusion. They were critical for um, for safe transfusions, um, making sure that blood was compatible between donor and recipient. But they were also these fascinating immunological traits. So they had a, there was a great scientific interest in what these, um, what these entities were as immunological phenomena. Um, But they were also fascinating genetic objects. And, and um, really, one of the first um, clear cut genetic human traits that scientists could study and play with and and a trait that that um, was very abundant that was a huge amount of data because of their use in blood transfusion so blood groups have this sort of um, central um, central position in several different fields in the mid-20th century and um, and had to and and moved between these different domains and so they provided this very interesting focus for um, a sort of a history of human genetics that um, came from a from a different angle that wasn't about concepts or theoretical innovations but was about the practices of doing human genetics. So all of this uh, research culminated in your book uh, Blood Relations that looks at uh, the very early uh, field of human genetics uh, that was uh, based on uh, science. It was also included bureaucracy and institutions and networks and the blood transfusion. And it takes us through the decades of uh, 20th, early 20th century and so on. So can you tell us what was the environment during the early 20th century, so 1900s, um, and what was the state of uh, human genetics and blood transfusions? Yes, yes. Um so blood transfusion at that time um, was pretty precarious. Um, in the 19th century, I believe doctors and surgeons had experimented with methods of transfusion using all sorts of fluids, saline, human blood, animal blood, um, sometimes milk, um, and and only in circumstances of extreme danger, so people who really wouldn't survive without such a transfusion. And of course, those um, like those attempts were, were extremely risky. Um, and one of the main problems for blood 
for doing this sort of surgery at the time was that when blood comes out of the human body, it clots and it would clot in tubes and it clots in syringes and it's very difficult to control. Um, and that really continued to be a huge problem up until really the, sec- uh, the, the First World War. So um, there were experiments with um, anti-clotting agents before that time, but they were very controversial. People were very unsure as to whether they were themselves quite dangerous. Um, but the First World War um, offered the conditions, as as do so many wars, um, of experimentation on people who were very, very critically wounded. And so doctors working on on the Western Front um, were inclined to experiment with by taking blood from lightly wounded soldiers and giving it to critically wounded wounded soldiers. And they were experimenting with anticoagulants and finding that it was possible to do that sort of operation using anticoagulants, sodium citrate, that is, um, and syringes. So the First World War was um, marked quite a decisive change in the um, technologies of blood transfusion. As for genetics, um, well, 1900 was a period of, um, of, well, it was an important time for certain kinds of studies of inheritance. The term genetics was um, beginning to be in circulation by that time. Um, by the sort of 1910s, 19, around 1912-13, there were there was plenty of experimentation happening on on plants and animals, um, and on trying to understand the mechanism of inheritance. There was by the 1920s and 30s there was enormous interest in human heredity more generally. So thinking about what kinds of traits are inherited, um, personality, um, IQ all sorts of um of traits that were understood to be vitally important to those interested in eugenics and the um the the heredity that the state of a of populations um but there were very few traits like one or two human traits that were that had sufficiently clear cut inheritance to be understood as genetic um, now, as blood transfusion expanded in the 1920s, especially um, with these the use of these anti-clotting agents, and more and more donors um, began to come forward to give their blood, um, the blood groups began to be seen as really important, um, really important entities in the practices of transfusion. That testing the blood groups and making sure that the blood between donor and recipient were compatible was important for the um, outcome of, of transfusions. And as the number of donor donors grew and more and more people had their blood groups tested, these blood groups became the, fo- the focus of quite a lot of attention from scientists of different kinds, including people interested in, eugen- in, in genetics, um, in heredity, in eugenics. Um, and, and particularly in, in race science, the science of, um, of human difference. And blood groups became, uh, were taken up by people in all of those fields as, um, as interesting entities for thinking about, um, about, about human heredity and human difference. 
So how precisely are blood groups differentiated? Why are they different? So the term blood group um, initially referred to, and still refers to to a certain degree, um, to um, categories of blood. So if you mix blood samples from different people, they will sometimes agglutinate or sort of curdle um, and sometimes they'll mix very freely and there won't there seems to be no agglutination. Um, in 1900, when they were first discovered by Carl Landsteiner, who much later got the Nobel Prize um, for this, Landsteiner found that there were patterns to those agglutinations. Um, and he he determined that human blood could be categorized into four distinct groups. Um, A, B, AB and O, and those groupings were quite early on understood to represent proteins on the surface of red blood cells, which were causing immunological reactions um, with people who, with the blood of people belonging to other groups. So they were immunological phenomena. They were also essentially symbols for understanding whose blood could mix with whom. And as I mentioned, as they, as they, um, accumulated on lists of blood donors and in medical records they also became they were sort of taken up for a range of different purposes um, and a range of different kinds of scientific study. Um, So when the human genetics and uh, blood transfusion uh, become institutionalized? Did you sorry did you say when did they become institutionalized? Yeah, so early early to, uh, early 20th century or after the war? Right. So um so these fields were pretty separate. Um there was um the institutional link didn't really co- come in. I my my study I should say focuses specifically on Britain, um where there was a particularly tight link forged between the practices of blood transfusion and the study of human genetics. Um, and that happened at the outset of the Second World War, so in 1939. And the backstory to that was that um, in the 1930s, scientists in a group of scientists in Britain, quite influential geneticists in Britain, um, were brought together by the major funding organisation in the UK. So that's the Medical Research Council. They were brought together to form a committee of human genetics and they were tasked with assessing where funding should go to in the UK that would that would promote this new field of human genetics. Um, some of the members of that organisation were JBS Haldane, R.A. Fisher um, and Lionel Penrose, um, so they were all quite well known at that time, and they simultaneously got very interested in all this new work that was that was happening on the continent on blood groups and its and their inheritance. And they were so excited by this that they, I mean, they talked about blood groups at their very first meeting. Um, and R. A. Fisher, who was one of the members of that committee, he was a already well established statistician and geneticist, he managed to get funding from the Rockefeller Foundation in New York to set up a lab devoted to the study of blood groups and their genetics. 
So he had this lab running from 1934, 1935 at University College in central London. And things were going well. They had a fair amount of data. They were collecting blood groups. Um, They were collecting data on blood groups of hundreds of people around London. But as as war got closer and more visible, um, various um, people in London began to think about um, a new, about a wartime transfusion service, which was understood then to be really a a vital um, um, air raid defence measure um, against the anticipated bombing of London. Um, and during the course of that planning, those that planning exercise, um, where they plan to use new technologies of blood storage to carry out these mass blood collections um, and and lots and lots of transfusions, they turned to Fisher and his lab and asked the lab members if they would be willing to carry out some of the practical blood grouping work of the transfusion service. So the lab, um, the sort of lab manager, who was a a doctor called a pathologist called George Taylor, was asked to um, to lead the training of what were known in the that they 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 referred to as blood grouping girls in London to carry out blood grouping tests. They were also charged with um, creating standardised anti-sera, so that's the reagents for doing blood grouping tests. Um, for the transfusion services. And then when war actually broke out, the Medical Research Council co-opted Fisher's lab um, and made it part of the blood transfusion, the emergency blood transfusion service. The lab was moved out of University College to, um, to Cambridge, into the pathology department in Cambridge. And there it was expected to devote its time to doing this practical work for the transfusion services. Meanwhile, Fisher himself desperately tried to stay on at University College, but was chucked out because University College closed its doors. He found himself um, a lab space at his old research institute at a um, plant breeding institute in Rothamsted, just north of London. And from there, he decided to take advantage of the new institutional connection between his lab and the transfusion service and try to leverage large quantities of data from the blood depots, um, blood group data, which which he then used to do research. So to study the blood groups of um, the British population and to think about experiments on the inheritance of new blood groups which were being discovered. And that institutional connection, so between R.A. Fisher, who was a preeminent geneticist, and the blood transfusion service that was using all of the practical knowledge that his lab members um, had gained, um, that really consolidated during the war and then endured after the war in in new ways. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating that uh, such a progress has been made in uh, population genetics and even before the molecular discovery of the gene in in the 50s. It's quite a big uh, amount of work. Yes, it was. It was a really. It's a really interesting um, episode. I think that not only that it was prior to molecular biology, um, but also that so much happened during during these conditions of war, and in, in, and not just as a sort of um, not not just in spite of the war, but precisely because of it, because of all of this um, 
because of all of the efforts that were going being made to extract blood and move it between people's bodies. So then the uh, visas blood groups were also discovered. So can you tell me what specifically is it and what was the importance? Okay, sure. So um, I won't go into the um, technical controversies around the rhesus blood groups. It's a fascinating story and, and a very lengthy one. But um, it's perhaps sufficient to say that the discovery of the rhesus blood groups, their definition in 1940, um, and the way that they were then taken up by the Golden Serum Unit and R.A. Fisher um, in the subsequent years um, and became a real focus of their research in Cambridge um, using the serum from rhesus monkeys and um, and first local women in the hospital, the local hospital, Addenbrooke's Hospital, but increasingly um, using samples of blood sent to them from blood depots and hospitals all around Britain. Um, it became a really major focus of their research and established the Galton Serum Unit in Cambridge, the wartime lab, as the preeminent um, experts in blood groups and their genetics. So having so many different parts that are a part of this uh, uh, blood grouping, uh, is that the time where, uh, when the nomenclature was standardised predominantly or started being standardised? Yes, so um, nomenclatures are always difficult to standardise. Um, the Even the ABO blood groups that Landsteiner had so named in 1900 um, came to be called other things in the 1920s and 30s and really only became re-standardised um, at the end of the 1930s with, um, along, uh, like as the, with the development of... Um, new international societies of blood transfusion. So even the ABO blood groups were a little bit hard to standardise. Um, the rhesus blood groups, as the numbers of rhesus blood groups, the complexities of those blood groups emerged, there was huge controversy about the nomenclatures that should be used to denote them. And the nomenclatures came became to be associated with different theories about how serological reactions happened and how these blood groups were inherited. Um, and the rhesus blood groups, some listeners will know that even today go by two distinct nomenclatures um, and, um, and that has its origins during this wartime period. So as you mentioned, in the early 20th century, uh, the blood transfusions were predominantly used during the war efforts as a very um, sort of last resort uh, um, operation as such. And how did we start using it more in the medical practice uh, during surgeries or uh, neonatal care? That's Yeah, that's a good question. So certainly before the Second World War, transfusions were still quite rare and were used in emergency situations. And when the emergency blood transfusion service was set up in Britain, that was the wartime service, they anticipated that it would be crucial for emergency situations, so extreme shock and blood loss. Um, as the war went on, doctors were finding and surgeons were finding blood increasingly useful for all sorts of other purposes. Um, so the um, so for the anemias, um, including the um, 
anemia caused by rhesus incompatibility, but also more chronic anemias. Um, by um, by the late 1940s, so once the war was over, um, surgeons were beginning to find blood pretty indispensable for the kinds of um, for the kinds of operations that they were doing. So that's not just emergency operations, but routine operations and blood grouping would happen in advance um, on the patient um, in order to line up blood that could be used during an operation. So this was a really big shift. And it meant that once the war was over, so once the emergency situation was over, there was never, nevertheless a never, um, never-ending increase in the need for blood. So more and more donors needed to be recruited. Did this also include uh, the centralised uh, blood collection services in Britain? Yes. Yeah, so during the war, um, blood collections were increasingly sort of networked and, um, and to some extent centralised. They were being defined and controlled from the Ministry of Health or from the Medical Research Council and then the Ministry of Health in London. Um, after the war ended and coinciding with the establishment of the new National Health Service, which in many ways was built on the wartime systems for um, uh, wartime medical systems, um, the blood collections began to be um, well, began to be organised um, in line with the National Health Service organisation. Um, so, were to some extent centralized there was a it was a regional it was a regional service so it extended to all parts of the country and had regional centers around the country um, which coincided with the NHS defined regions Um, and then it was to some extent overseen by the Ministry of Health in London and the um, the directors of those various regional depots around the country would c- travel to London on a regular basis to meet and discuss problems, make plans, coordinate publicity campaigns and so on. So the uh, regional centre organisation, it seemed to have really paved the way for scientists to have an access uh, to more samples which are really traced to their donors and uh, this helped pave the way to discovery of the rare blood groups. So what are those? Yeah, so from, from the beginning of the war, really, this, the conditions that I've described led to this intensive interest in blood groups and, um, and access to hundreds of thousands of blood samples Um, So there was this amazingly abundant material for doing research. And um, in different parts of the country, blood depot directors and workers were always keeping an eye out on problematic transfusion reactions that couldn't be explained from by by the existing blood group. So they couldn't be couldn't be explained using the tests already in use um, by those depots. So whenever a transfusion proceeded quite badly so a patient might react to the blood that they were being given um, the surgeon in charge would fill out a form and send it back to the depot with the bottle of blood and then that could be traced back to the donor and then the blood depot serologist would have the um, ability to then follow up that problem and try to understand 
why the blood of the donor and the blood of the recipient didn't mix. <laughs> um, and in that mm. way, they brought to light those serologists, those people working in depots and in pathology um, labs in hospitals, um, made visible a whole new range of blood groups that were causing problems in a small number of patients. And so the numbers of blood groups that were known about expanded dramatically. And after the war was over and blood began to be used much more routinely in surgery um, and in neonatal care, there was much greater attention being given to these subtle differences in blood type. So these much more um, subtle um, blood groups or fine details of the of the serological difference, which sometimes make a difference to the outcome of transfusion. And as this these routine processes um, began to be more widespread, much more attention was being focused now on that very rare blood that that um, had a special blood type that needed for, that might be needed for a specific patient um, in a hurry. And it this led to a number of newspaper appeals so that um, so for example there was there was a newspaper appeal around 1950 um, for blood of a very rare type that was needed for a woman who had to have this vital operation and the newspapers followed these stories and breathlessly updated their readers on blood that had been flown in from from elsewhere in Europe or even from Australia um, and then often these stories would end up with this kind of happy conclusion of a blood type being found and a donor happily giving their blood and the recipient being saved. So it was a question of of, of attention and, um, and the fact that blood transfusion was so much safer now, um, it was so much more routine, and it meant that greater attention was being given to the specificities of blood. And the rare blood donor became a bit of a figure, I mean, sort of in popular culture so there were um, multiple radio plays on the BBC about rare blood and an emergency search for rare blood there was a quite a successful film called emergency call that came out I think in 1952 um, which centered around the search for rare blood that would be needed to save um, a dying child Um, and I should say that actually in the US um, this interest in rare blood was even more intense there were rare blood blood clubs that were set up um, and people were there's some wonderful stories um, from um, a scholar called Susan Lederer who writes about who writes about this and the interest in rare blood and its connection to the Cold War and and concerns about about um, atomic the atomic bomb and and whose blood might be valuable in that kind of situation um, there's stories of blood groups being tattooed onto people's arms and so on. So there was this really real flourishing interest in in, in rarity um, and, and who had the most valuable blood. And actually those kinds of stories still exist in magazines today. The Man with the Golden Blood was a recent example. So as we move through the decades and more research is underway on, on the blood uh, itself and Arthur Morant's blood group, Reference Laboratory, played uh, quite a central role in it. I was just wondering, when was this decoupling um, uh, underway between the blood transfusion and genetics? Thank you. Yes, you're right. So 
So in the UK, where a lot of cutting-edge blood group research was happening, um, this institutional connection between um, genetics, serology research, and blood transfusion really remained in place for a couple of decades after the Second World War. So after the war ended, Fisher's what had been Fisher's lab in Cambridge was disbanded, um, but then reconstituted as two new labs at the Lister Institute in London. <coughs> Excuse me. And at the Lister Institute, um, there were this, these two labs. One was the blood group research unit, which was devoted to carrying out research on the genetics and inheritance of blood groups. And that was headed by Robert Race. And next door, Arthur Morant ran the blood group reference laboratory, which was meant to do the more practical work of making anti-sera, so the reagents for doing blood grouping, um, and, um, and well, standardising that anti-sera and distributing it. Um, and those two labs became or continued their had their continued their role as um, as real centres for doing blood group research. Um, Laurent, meanwhile, ran an additional institution. He was the director of the um, of a of a centre at the Royal Anthropological Institute, also in central London, which was. Um, which was devoted to the collection of large quantities of data on the blood groups of populations around the world. And so he became a, um, an author of some massive compendia of blood group, um, blood group distributions that made inferences about human evolution and migration and racial difference. And so that continued, um, that work really continued for a couple of decades. Um, it was really the 1950s and then, and then the 1960s, that um, blood groups began to lose their status as the pre- preeminent genetic traits for humans. Um, so, as I mentioned before, they were very abundant. They were quite. They had quite clear cut, quite interesting genetics. So they were the focus of a lot of attention. But from the early 1950s, um, there was new research interest in the hemoglobin proteins of blood. Um, later on, um, in the late 1950s, various enzymes in blood, which seemed to have a clear-cut genetic inheritance, um, and a really a, a flourishing interest in human genetics and particularly human population genetics and how populations of the world differ genetically became focused less on the blood groups, although that was still the case, but also on all of these other new, quite interesting traits like hemoglobin and enzymes and and so on. Um, So blood groups began to sort of lose their cutting edge status, I suppose, um, and um, became incorporated into a much more expansive research programme on human genetics. And of course, and of course, all of these uh, really startling advances in human genetics could not have been done without collection of such a huge, vast amounts of data. And of course, nowadays, we're all very, uh, very careful about our data and sharing. So I'm just wondering, what can we learn uh, from the history about maybe ethical implications uh, from the story? It's been it's really interesting to reflect on how particularly human population genetics changed, um, but also um, but also carried over um, legacies from the period that I've been writing about. Um, 
So the sorts of blood collections that Morant was doing or that he was collating, I mean, he didn't really carry out these collections himself. He wrote to correspondents all around the world in order to collect together um, um, new data on on blood groups of different populations. So, um, and then that expanded to to encompass other kinds of traits and this continued really till the early 1990s um by i think it was 19 even 1992 was probably the last major compilation of um of data on all on on sort of totalizing <laughs> compilation of data on um human traits in populations around the world but these were phenotypic traits so these are things like the blood groups or like hemoglobin or other biochemical um features of of humans and um and it was then i think 1994 when um very uh visibly very famously um luca luigi cavalli sforza established what was known as the Human Genome Diversity Project, which was an attempt to do similar kinds of work, so collecting large quantities of data from populations around the world, but using um, but using genetic data, so um, so uh, data on genetic variation, um, sequence variation, rather than of the phenotypic proteins, um, the, the the protein variation um, of humans. So and that project, the Human Genome Diversity Project, um, in its methods, continued to um, continue to use, continued to have echoes of the past. So um, there's a really wonderful book by Jenny Reardon called Race to the Finish, which describes how the Human Genome Diversity Project um, relied on or attempted to carry out these large scale collections of blood, principally from um, indigenous people around the world and who were really um, really taken aback or surprised by the pushback that they received from this kind of activity. Um, and the Human Genome Diversity Project in many ways um, is a direct descendant of some of the collection programs that Morant was was overseeing and using in his in his work on human populations. So while researching the book, what was the most uh, interesting and exciting discovery you came across? Um, this is a bit of a, um, in, a, in a sense, a bit of a nerdy answer. But um, but the most surprising thing that happened to me was that um, very close to the end of the project, so I think I had just given my PhD supervisor the very first draft of the whole book, <clears throat> um, a... I happened to meet somebody at a party locally in Cambridge who who I was chatting to about these issues and about blood. And I I had heard that some frozen blood from this period that I'm telling you about um, from the 1960s still existed in Cambridge. And this person said to me, I think there's also some papers somewhere as well. I don't know if you'd be interested in these papers. And I followed it up after this party. and. Um, he took me to the Department of Biological Anthropology tea room. And inside the tea room, the there were shelves and shelves and shelves lined with about, I'd say, 200 boxes of archive material that had come from Arthur Morant. So the main 
protagonist, one of the main protagonists in my story. <laughs> um, so in all of the years I'd been researching this using those archives at The Welcome, which I began with, I'd never actually found any material that came from Morant's own archives. So all of that massive quantity of data that he accumulated in London on the blood groups of populations around the world. I'd never actually seen any of that material and I was a bit confused by it. It turned out it was all in this tea room in the department very next door very next door to HPS where I was doing my PhD and it had been sitting there for 20 years. Um, Moron never worked in Cambridge so it wasn't at all obvious that it should be there um, but it turned out it had, it had arrived in Cambridge through quite a circuitous route and was just sitting on these shelves. So it was a completely astonishing. I was really shaken and I didn't know what to do because it's beautiful, you know, it's an incredible collection, but I'm not I'm no archivist and I don't know how to evaluate that kind of material or know how to sort it or how to look at it. And eventually I was able to contact the archivists at the Welcome Library who came and assessed it. It was just fascinating watching them work, watching them assess this collection. Um, and they eventually um, acquired it and it's now at the welcome being catalogued. So I've used tiny, tiny amounts because I, I, I've leafed through some of the material, but it was just an overwhelming quantity of, of stuff. <laughs> so, so I'll, so once that's catalogued and they're fantastic at doing this kind of work there, um, I will go and have a nice look <laughs> one day. Wow. This is treasures of uh, forgotten filing cabinets and shelves. <laughs> So in the book, you also use quite a few images and illustrations, and they really complement the book. So why why did you use those? The a lot of the illustrations, I have to thank a a student colleague of mine, so someone who was doing their PhD at the same time as me, um, and who I learned a massive amount from. So this was somebody called Nick Whitfield, and he was writing a PhD about um, cultures of blood donation in wartime Britain, um, and he had found some of the wonderful pictures um they were originally publicity photos actually of the wartime transfusion service and not just the sort of head figures or the 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 well-known people but also um there's some lovely photos of persons sharpening needles at the depot or somebody who was washing the bottles at the depot so all of these characters who um who are often out of sight, but who were incredibly important for understanding how this medical service, but also by extension, this science of, of human genetics was built. Um, need, I mean, it was really built using the labor of these of these people. And um, so I was really grateful to find those kinds of images. Um, the other images that, um, that I, I really love in this book come from a a remarkable little pamphlet that was published in 1952, I think, um, by UNESCO that um, was part of a highly visible campaign that UNESCO um, UNESCO launched that um, attempted to use science to sort of dispel notions of racial prejudice. So it's called the well, the anti-racism campaign, um, and it's very famous for various reasons. But one of the lesser known elements of that campaign was this book that was published for children, a picture book, um, which has these beautiful sort of modernist um, images, um, which are depicting how genetics, um, like how we should be thinking about genetics and the insights that it gives us into, into, into race science. So 
I guess that was the other source of, um, and, and actually the cover of the book, which I like very much, I think the designer was brilliant um, coming up with this. The cover of the book is based on one of the images from that book, from the UNESCO 19 to, 1952 volume, What is Race? Yes, I found visuals really helpful to sort of try time travel into those eras. <laughs> yeah. So I was just wondering, uh, do you know your own blood group? Uh, I do. I've actually forgotten it momentarily. <laughs> I do I do donate blood, so I have had my blood group disclosed to me. Um, we also once attempted to, um, you can buy blood grouping tests on Amazon. Um, and the reason I did that was because these tests that one can buy are almost identical to some tests that were invented in the 1950s, which I write about, which were blood grouping tests that could happen on paper or card, which had the reagents for the tests um, soaked into a card. And then you were meant to add the blood samples to the card and read off the um, the blood group. Um, and we tried that. So me and my partner um, tried it. We determined his blood type. We laminated the card, which was came with the instructions, um, and then we discovered when he went to donate blood that it was totally wrong. <laughs> so, um, so there were lots of controversies about the efficacy of this method, and it was—it's clearly still a problem. Um, yeah, I myself, myself have benefited once from the blood transfusion, and after reading reading your book, I have a better appreciation of the nowadays seemingly routine procedure of the uh, transfusion, which has such a uh, rich history. Oh, that's lovely to hear. So, we've taken up a lot of your time. And I would like to ask, what are you currently working on? And what is your next project? Mm, thank you. Um, I've just started this new project. I say just started. I started it officially last March, but things have been a bit slow in starting. Um, it's in some ways a continuation of this, or it has. It certainly has a relationship to the blood, um, the blood project. So um, I'm very interested in how my overall, um, my overall sort of question that motivates me now is thinking how has genetics become such a powerful way of understanding human health and human identity and human history um and so the book we've been talking about goes a little way towards thinking about that um my next project does more of that so i'm i'm interested in understanding how genetics or human genetics has been talked about and communicated since the second world war and i'm I'm embarking on that by um, focusing on the history of genetic counselling, which is a um, medical specialty of professionals who help patients and prospective parents sometimes to interpret the results of genetic tests. Um, and that profession, which, is, um, which has really only been a profession for 30 years or so, um, has a much longer history. So genetic counselling has been something that's been happening um, for for well since the second world war and has got a very interesting history um and so i'm going to be well i am now starting to um to recover what that history looks like how genetic how communication in this sort of medical genetic setting has changed over the last 70 years sounds a uh, very exciting and an, an important project so uh, where can our listeners find more information about your work and your, and your book. There's um, the book. The details of the book are on the <clears throat> University of Chicago Press website. I'm still um, I'm still to write much about the new project, but I I um, I have a website at my university, which is Queen Mary University of London. I'm in the School of History, 
um, and um, and yeah, I'm not really sure if that was a good answer. Sorry. Excellent. Yep. So thank you very much for joining me today and sharing with us this gripping story. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Mm-hmm.